0: Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison, and I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or so as we go over recent developments in public safety labor relations. And I want to start off where I think I started off last month with what's going on with the Consumer Price Index, You may have seen the news reports that the Consumer Price Index, the CPI, remains stubbornly high in spite of the efforts of the Federal Reserve uh, to make adjustments in the interest rate. Uh, It remains at 8.3% on a national level. Uh, That, of course, has implications for bargaining in public safety. And we are seeing, at least on the western half of the United States, we are seeing wage increases like we really haven't almost ever seen, uh, or at least not seen since the first two or three years of the 1980s. Uh, It is not unusual in Oregon or Washington now to see three-year settlements for police and fire coming in at 20% or even 25%. Uh, That That The same thing is true down in California. Uh, And it is true to a greater or lesser extent. It's a little bit spottier in the rest of the country. But as we know, we now have national markets for police officers and corrections officers and firefighters. And when we see large wage increases in a portion of the country, chances are there's going to be an impact all around the country over time. One moderating feature of the CPI, and this just uh, takes a little bit of understanding of how the numbers are, is that while the CPI did go up by 8.3% over the last 12 months, in fact, the rise from July to August was only 0.1% when the big run-up in the cost of living was, was in the latter part of 2021 and the early part of 2022. Uh, And of course, if you're looking at the CPI on an annual basis, it is going to reflect that high run-up. But there is some cause for believing that we are now seeing moderation in consumer prices Moderation that has spurred, among other things, a run-up in the stock market and may well continue at least throughout the rest of the year. And one of the reasons for that moderation is housing. Uh, housing is, makes up about 35% of the consumer price index. And the cost of housing in this country has actually been slightly declining over the course of the last few months. In some markets, it's more than slightly declining, it's declining in double digits, Uh, but all around the country, we're seeing uh, a reduction, modest reduction in the housing costs, and that is going to keep the CPI lower, even in the face of higher energy costs, higher food costs, uh, higher costs for things where we're still hung up in the supply chain. So we're, we're going to keep an eye on it. Uh, if you are a subscriber to Public Safety Labor News, we know, you know that every month we break down the CPI by regions of the country and how fast it is increasing. Uh, and no doubt, I'll start off next month's podcast talking about where we are with respect to the cost of living. Now onto the cases, uh, and I have a couple of pairs of cases that I want to talk about, plus two others. I want to talk about six cases today, so I'm going to try to get through this in as expeditious a fashion as I can. Uh, but four of those cases actually fall into two categories, and let's talk about the first set of them that deal with the continuing duty to bargain. The continuing duty to bargain is this feature of an employer's obligation to bargain where the employer can't make a unilateral change in a past practice without first negotiating with the union, unless the union somehow waives the right to bargain over changes. So, this continuing duty to bargain is the notion that the bargaining obligation, the bargaining relationship, continues even though a contract is in effect, even though there's a collective bargaining agreement or a memorandum of understanding, uh, there still is this obligation on the part of an employer to maintain past practices or to negotiate over changes in them. Now, of course, a contract or an MOU can specify what the rules are. This continuing duty to bargain only applies in the gaps where your contract is not controlling. So let's say, for example, you had a collective bargaining agreement that did not describe the basic work shift. I know that's never gonna happen, but let's say you had one like that. The continuing duty to bargain would say to an employer and a union, that the employer could not make a change in the basic work shift, because that's hours of work, and that's going to be mandatory for bargaining, wages, hours, and terms and conditions of employment, right? Uh, That an employer could not make a unilateral change in that schedule without first negotiating with the union, unless the union has somehow waived the right to negotiate over the change. And it's the concept of waiver that I wanted to talk about with respect to these two cases, because the whole notion of how a union can waive its right to bargain is implicated in both of these cases. So, first, comes out of Portland, Oregon, my hometown, uh, and this involves the Portland Firefighters Association. Uh, We do not, my law firm does not represent the Firefighters Association, so no conflict of interest talking about this case. And this is an old case. This is a case that started almost 10 years ago now. It's bounced back and forth to the Oregon Court of Appeals a couple of times, uh, and so that's why it's taken so long. So the union, the Firefighters Association, and the city reach a four-year contract between 2012 and 2016, and one year into the contract, the city is hit with budgetary problems. Uh, The city ends up proposing to make cuts of $4.4 million from the city's fire bureau budget. Uh, And that had some significance. The city was proposing to close four fire companies. That would have resulted in a layoff of 26 bargaining unit firefighters. And the mayor was also seeking to implement what the mayor called innovations by replacing some of the functions of these four companies with equipment. The association and the fire chief uh, worked pretty hard together to avoid the layoffs And eventually, they brought a third party, the mayor's policy advisor, into the discussion, and they had a series of three meetings. And over the course of the three meetings, the mayor's liaison and the president of the Firefighters Association, Alan Fershweiler, entered into, they reached an oral agreement as to how to deal with all of these budgetary problems. What did the oral agreement say? It said, look, First of all, the city is going to preserve those 26 firefighter positions and the city will apply for what was known as a safer grant, federal grant, to pay for those uh, positions. And the city would provide bridge funding until the grant money became available. In exchange, the city would gain the right to eliminate some promotional positions and would have the right to implement that new equipment that would theoretically reduce the need for staffing. The association agreed it would not file a grievance over the cost-saving operational changes that ordinarily would have been subject to mandatory bargaining. So that's a pretty comprehensive deal, right? Um, The city agrees it's not going to lay off the 26 employees, and the city gets some changes that it wants, some operational changes in terms of equipment, and the union says we won't file a grievance. Only the union files an unfair labor practice complaint with Oregon's Employment Relations Board. Now, the city did adopt the budget, did apply for the SAFER grant, and did implement the changes. But what the association is contending in its unfair labor practice complaint is the city had to bargain over these changes that were mandatory for negotiations. And the city answers, "Uh, look, we were talking to the union president, we reached a deal with the union president. And the union president waived the association's ability to object to unilateral changes by reaching this oral agreement concerning the budget and operational changes. And that's the issue that ends up in the Oregon Court of Appeals nine years later. And the issue is, is an oral agreement of the continuing duty to bargain, is it enforceable? And uh, the union's argument here is not that an oral agreement wasn't reached. The union's argument is that the collective bargaining agreement itself required that all agreements concerning unfair labor practice complaints had to be in writing. Now, what does the language of the contract say? And I'm quoting, any settlement of a grievance under this article which would alter or amend the terms of this agreement or any sidebar agreement or memorandum of understanding shall not be binding unless it's approved in writing by the association and the city. And the union's argument here is this oral agreement, this is the equivalent of a sidebar agreement. Okay. What's a sidebar agreement? Typically these happen when you're negotiating a new contract and uh, for whatever reason, the dynamics of the bargaining room are such that it's difficult to reach an agreement. And so the lead negotiators for each side plus one or two representatives from uh, the employer and the union, they all go out into the hall or they go out into, I've reached these agreements in a parking lot. And you work out a deal. Uh, and then you bring it back into the bargaining teams, and they approve it. Well, uh, the association is saying here that what the union president and the mayor's liaison agreed to was a sidebar agreement, and the contract prohibited those uh, unless they were in writing. The Oregon Court of Appeals says that's not what the contract says, and I'm quoting. The waiver that the Employment Relations Board found had occurred did not change the terms of the collective bargaining agreement that would require bargaining over operational changes. It waived them. Uh, and that's an affirmative defense that the law provides to a unilateral contract change. That, that's a defense to the continuing duty to bargain. And the court goes on to say, quote, we reject. The Association's contention that if there was a waiver, it was limited to the right to grieve the unilateral changes and did not include a waiver of the right to bring an unfair labor practice complaint. The Employment Relations Board found that the waiver encompassed all objections to unilateral operational changes and the association's agreement not to contest the agreed-upon changes was central to the party settlement of the budget dispute. So, result, city gets to maintain the changes, and unfair labor practice complaint rejected. What is the lesson we are to learn about this? If you're going to enter into agreements like this, put it in writing. Make sure both sides sign it. Don't be in the position of arguing later on whether or not an oral agreement was reached. And if it was reached, does it contravene what the contract may say about how agreements have to be memorialized? Anytime you reach an agreement that is substantial enough like this, that involves millions of dollars and the jobs of 26 firefighters, make sure that agreement is in writing. Okay, now on to our second waiver case. And this one's another firefighter case. This is from Syracuse, New York. And this delves into the question of who can waive bargaining rights on behalf of a union, and how can they waive them by simply doing nothing, by simply not asserting their bargaining rights? So, Uh, What happens in this case? So these are firefighters for Syracuse, New York. They're represented by the Syracuse Firefighters Association. And there's been a long practice in the city where firefighters undergo employment-related medical examinations by uh, a doctor who is designated as the fire physician. A lot of different types of physical examinations uh, includes uh, one Uh, examination that is given to firefighters who deal with hazardous materials. Uh, There's examinations over fitness for duty, sick leave time certification, tuberculosis testing. Uh, And when firefighters show up to the fire physician's office to undergo one of these examinations, they are presented by the doctor with a patient consent form. That patient consent form allows the fire physician to communicate with the city, and I'm quoting, for the purpose of qualifying under employer or regulatory guidelines. In 2019, the association begins protesting the scope of the consent forms used by the fire physician. Those forms had recently been revised, and the association thought that they were being broadened. Eventually, the association demands to bargain over the use of the forms. Uh, The city refuses to bargain, and the association files an unfair labor practice complaint with New York's Public Employment Relations Board, citing the continuing duty to bargain. Now, uh, is the scope of a release form, a medical release form, a mandatory subject of bargaining? Not a lot of cases on it, but... Uh, I think the answer is almost, well, certainly every case I've seen and almost everywhere is likely to be, yeah, it's a mandatory subject of bargaining because uh, it implicates the privacy rights of employees, the medical privacy rights of employees. Uh, So the argument in this case from the employer is not, this is not a negotiable topic. The argument is the union waive the right to bargain over the scope of the forms. And an administrative law judge for the Public Employment Relations Board agrees with the employer. And what does the ALJ say? What's his rationale here? And I'm quoting, the association knew or reasonably should have known about the fire physician's use of the revised consent form well before 2019, when it protested the scope of the form. Specifically, the ALJ continues, an association vice president executed two such revised consent forms in 2017. In addition, a former president of the association executed a consent form in 2018. And the ALJ concludes that I find that three instances of officers of the association within their elected terms executing the revised consent forms renders the charge untimely, which is another way of saying the union sat on its rights. It waived the right to bargain over the change. And what this tells employers and unions is the notion that the waiver can be oral, as it was in the Portland case, but the waiver can simply be um, or amount to doing nothing, not responding to an obvious change in working conditions. There is an obligation on the part of unions. Once members of their governing body, an executive board, a board of directors, whatever it might be, once a president or a vice president learn of an employer's intention to change a mandatory subject of bargaining, or the fact that an employer has made such a change, there is an obligation on them to communicate that to the union and an obligation on the union to timely assert their bargaining rights through sending off to the employer a demand to bargain over the changes in whatever the subject of bargaining is. Uh, And what happened in the Syracuse case was the president and the vice president knew of the changes, they signed the forms, but the union did not act for more than two years. By the way, what is acting in a timely fashion? How quickly does a union need to assert its bargaining rights? And would that there was a hard and fast rule on this, but there's just not. Uh, I can tell you what in our law firm we advise our clients to do, which is you better be asserting your right to bargain within 30 days of learning that the employer is even contemplating a change in a mandatory subject of bargaining. Why wait? By waiting... Not only do you diminish your opportunity to influence the change through the bargaining process, but you also risk losing the ability to challenge the change through the filing of an unfair labor practice complaint. While I'm talking about sick leave, nice transition there, right? Uh, While I'm talking about sick leave, I want to talk about a case that comes out of Illinois Uh, involving a sick leave confinement policy. This involves corrections officers for Cook County, Illinois. Uh, That's Chicago's county. They're represented by the Teamsters Union, local 700 of the Teamsters Union. And uh, the union and the sheriff's department have a collective bargaining agreement that addresses, in part, the concern of the sheriff's office about attendance problems. And it's a particular kind of attendance problem. Uh, It's one where employees were calling in sick uh, and or taking medical leave when they could not use pre-approved vacation or personal time. So the sort of situation where the employee would put in a request to use a vacation day, be turned down for staffing reasons or because they didn't have seniority, whatever it might be, and they just call in sick on that same day. So uh, what does the collective bargaining agreement say? It says, look, if an employee is going to call in sick, they have to remain in their home for the duration of any missed shifts. Uh, That's not the only thing uh, they're subject to. They also have to report any time that they leave their home. And the contract allows the sheriff's department to call the employee's home to check up on them or to send personnel to the employee's home to verify that they were in fact complying with the policy. And if the employee did not comply with the policy, they'd be subject to discipline up to and including termination of employment. And collectively, these requirements were known as the home check provisions of the sick leave policy. So if you, uh, for example, a corrections officer, you might be working a a 10-hour day or a 12-hour day. Let's say it's a 10-hour day and your day started at 8 a.m. Your normal work shift started at 8 a.m. and ran to 6 p.m. You'd have to remain at home if you called in sick from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, and eventually, a group of corrections officers sue the uh, county over this clause. And uh, they alleged that the home check provisions violated their constitutional rights under the First, Fourth, Ninth, and Fourteenth Amendments by compelling them to stay at home. Uh, and did not make any exceptions for things like exercising the right to vote, attending church, or traveling across state lines. This is, of course, Cook County, so Indiana is uh, within 15 minutes. Uh, so there are no exceptions for any of those reasons to leave home. And the officers are seeking an injunction Uh, prohibiting the department from imposing the home check requirements. And this ends up in the lap of a federal court trial judge. And the judge never gets to the merits of the confinement policy. He instead finds that the officers lacked standing to bring the lawsuit. Now you hear this sometimes talked about in, in the public press that somebody doesn't have standing to bring a lawsuit. What does it actually mean? Well, constitutional standing, uh, in essence, has these three elements. It means you can only bring a lawsuit if you can show, element one, that you've suffered an injury. In fact, you've suffered an injury. Two, uh, that the injury is fairly traceable to the action of the defendant. So, he or she or it caused this injury. Uh, And three, that the injury is likely or has already occurred, as opposed to being merely speculative. And the injury has to be, the usual phrasing of this that you see from courts, it has to be concrete and particularized and actual or imminent and not conjectural or hypothetical. Well, if you don't have those three things, if you haven't suffered an actual injury that's traceable to the action of the defendant and that could be remedied in court, you don't have standing. You're going to get kicked out of court before the court ever gets to the merits of the case. Uh, And that's what the court in this case found the corrections officers lacked. So why? The court says this, quote, The evidence show that in 2018, uh, the plaintiffs, the corrections officers who sued, were subject to the home check provisions. Although this may be sufficient to show a past injury under the old contract, it's insufficient to establish standing. Why not? Because the plaintiffs did not provide any evidence that they were at risk to being subject to the home check provisions. Under the terms of the new contract, which is when the lawsuit was filed, the home check provision only applied to corrections officers who showed a pattern of medical time misuse or to individuals who called in sick on any of up to 12 designated days which would be designated by the sheriff. So what's misuse? Uh, It's defined in this new contract as meaning three or more instances of medical time over a 60-day rolling period that are on the day before or the day after a scheduled day off. That's commonly called a Monday-Friday pattern. Uh, Or three or more instances of medical time over a 60-day period of time uh, on the same week or weekend day, uh, or the use of three or more days, et cetera, et cetera, when the member had less than eight or 10 hours of medical time. And the problem, the court says, is these corrections officers who brought the lawsuit didn't qualify for the home check provisions, because they were not sick leave abusers as defined by this policy. And back to the court, quote, plaintiffs cite no evidence to support that any of them are at risk of being found to engage in medical time misuse as defined in the contract, or that they will take sick leave on any of the specific days designated by the sheriff. They have not met their burden to show that they have standing. All right, one other thing about this case. Uh, I started off by saying this is a sick leave confinement policy. You have to stay home. In this case, you have to stay home for the duration of your shift. Uh, There are going to be people listening to this podcast who when I said sick leave confinement policy, their reaction was, what in the world are you talking about? Is there really a rule some places where employees have to stay home for the duration of their shifts? And the answer is, yeah, there's such a rule in uh, many places around the country, not most, not even close to most, but in many places around the country. And in some cases, the rule is you have to stay home for the entire 24-hour period if you call in sick. It's very geographically distributed, these uh, sick leave confinement policies. So you find them, for example, in some large cities in the Northeast and the upper Midwest. Uh, I don't know of one uh, west of the Rocky Mountains. You just don't see them out in this part of the country. But they do exist. Are they constitutional? Can an employer really force somebody to stay home. And if they're constitutional, isn't that work that has to be compensated under the Fair Labor Standards Act if employees are forced to stay at home? And the answer is, and there's not many cases on this in the last 20 years, because this litigation all happened many years ago. The answers are, yeah, it's constitutional. Uh, And so So long as certain exceptions are made, I'll come back to that. But yeah, it's constitutional. And secondly, it's not work under the Fair Labor Standards Act because courts have said employees can make effective use of their off-duty time staying at home. So what are the exceptions that an employer has to make if it's going to have one of these policies? Well, you heard them when I recited the claims in the case. Uh, There have to be exceptions for constitutionally or statutorily protected activities. So you have to have an exception for the right to vote. You have to have an exception for the right to go to church or temple or wherever you might go for your religious celebrations. You have to have an exception exception for medical care or to engage in any activity that is protected uh, under some federal statute. So if you've got those exceptions, sick leave confinement policies are legal and they're enforceable. Now, are they a mandatory subject of bargaining? Would an employer have to negotiate over this? Of course, uh, anything to do with sick leave is gonna be a mandatory subject of bargaining. Uh, But they are out there And as you can see from this Cook County case, they can actually result in employees being terminated for wrongfully leaving their homes. Our next case comes to us from Kentucky, and it deals with a question that comes up from time to time, not with a lot of frequency. And the question is, is a conversation between a union representative and a union member, confidential in any way. So, what go, What's going on in this case? This involves the Louisville Jefferson County Metro government. Now, Louisville and Jefferson County are essentially a combined city county government, and Metro, as it's called, uh, negotiates uh, with the Fraternal Order of Police for a labor agreement covering law enforcement officers working for Metro. Uh, and this case starts in 2017 when a sergeant by the name of Armin White, Sergeant White, meets with his direct supervisors, uh, Lieutenant Donald George, uh, to discuss issues that Sergeant White was experiencing in the workplace. White reported directly to George, but he also had administrative duties under a different Lieutenant. And White's essential problem is that he tells Lieutenant George this, look, you and the other lieutenant, you're giving me conflicting orders, and I need to know what I should be doing here. I need you guys to straighten things out. So Lieutenant George then submits a memo to his supervisor, a Major, And in the memo, he alleges that Sergeant White complained to him of a hostile work environment. Well, you know, any time in a big city when someone says hostile work environment, you're going to have an internal affairs investigation start. And that's, in fact, what happened uh, with Metro PD's uh, Professional Standards Unit uh, starting an internal affairs investigation. During the investigation, Sergeant White says, hey, I didn't say hostile work environment. I I said nothing about that. I was talking about the two lieutenants straightening out what their instructions to me would be. So the Professional Standards Unit then begins investigating whether Lieutenant George filed a false report uh, in the sense that uh, Sergeant White never said hostile work environment. George uh, then, Lieutenant George, then goes to the president of the union, David Mutchler, and he wants to talk about the Professional Standards Unit uh, investigation. And over the course of time, uh, Mutchler, President Mutchler, talks both to George and to Sergeant White about what is going on with respect to this investigation. Well, the Professional Standards Unit finds out that Muchler has been speaking with both of these two, and so it tees up Muchler for an interview. This is kind of spinning out of control here, as you can tell. The FOP objects to any interview of Muchler, saying there's a union business privilege that completely protected the conversations from disclosure, uh, and eventually you end up with litigation over that question. Uh, The FOP filed an unfair labor practice complaint alleging that the effort to interrogate Mutchler amounted to unlawful coercion and thus was an unfair labor practice. And the case ends up before the Kentucky Supreme Court Now, there's not a lot of labor law in Kentucky. Very few cities have the right to collectively bargain in Kentucky. Uh, There's no uh, statewide bargaining law that applies to all cities and counties. Uh, So this is kind of an unfamiliar territory for the Kentucky Supreme Court. But the court really dives in and reaches a decision that is very consistent with findings of other courts and labor boards, as well as the National Labor Relations Board. And the court says that, or that series of conversations between Mutchler and his members, the lieutenant and the sergeant, that series of conversations were confidential. And I'm quoting from the court. The law broadly protects the ability of a police officer to work with their union representative on questions related to the conditions of their employment. If during internal investigations, the metro government could compel a union representative to divulge sensitive information, then the power of the protection within the law becomes illusory allowing Metro to compel information under threat of discipline will severely discourage other FOP members from candidly discussing their own problems with FOP presidents or representatives in the future. And the court says uh, those conversations were confidential. But, says the court, you know, the FOP actually may have used the wrong language in describing why those conversations were protected because they're not a privilege. Uh, there's not a privilege here, which is what the FOP was alleging. Uh, the court says, in fact, it's clearly not a privilege. The protection afforded by the law, quote, is better understood as a confidence It operates only against Metro and does not operate to bar a third party other than Metro from attempting to force the disclosure of the conversation. And that too is in keeping with decisions all around the country that have addressed this issue. Uh, This confidentiality arises out of the employer-employee or employer-labor union relationship. If the party that is trying to breach that confidentiality is somebody other than the employer, for example, a district attorney uh, that subpoenas the union president to testify, then there's no confidentiality because it's not a privilege. And this is why labor unions that are, uh, have a pretty good understanding of this principle, this is why their representatives, when they're talking with their members, are fine talking to them, knowing that the conversation is going to be protected. But the moment that the member says something that has potential criminal implications, the representative says, time out. I'm out of here. Let's get a lawyer in here where the protections of the attorney-client privilege are much, much greater. The last pair of cases I want to talk about uh, both involve employees forfeiting their pension benefits by engaging in criminal conduct. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these cases, uh, but I'm talking about them at all because this is an issue that's popping up much more than it used to. I used to go years without seeing one of these forfeiture cases. And now I see two or three of them every month. Uh, And so what you are finding is public employers and uh, retirement boards that are getting much more aggressive about provisions in the underlying retirement law that call for the forfeiture of pension benefits if an employee uh, engages in a certain type of crime. And almost always, these are crimes that are related to the job. So uh, let's dive into these two cases. First one comes out of Illinois. uh, It's a pretty amazing case. Uh, This involves a police officer by the name of Drew Peterson. He worked for the Bolingbrook Police Department, Uh, for 30 years, and he retired in 2007. Well, three years before he retired, his wife, Kathleen Savio, was found dead in her uh, bathtub. Uh, So three years later, Peterson retires. Uh, There's no prosecution. But in 2012, five years after he retires, Peterson is charged with murder, Convicted and sentenced to 38 years in prison. The pension board that governs Bolingbroke then took action uh, and voted unanimously to terminate Peterson's uh, pension benefits. And the reason was, the pension board said, that Peterson used his status as a police officer to either facilitate and or cover up uh, his murder of his wife. And the Illinois Court of Appeals upholds the termination of Peterson's pension benefits. Uh, And the court focuses on the precise words of the pension statute. And the words in the statute are that pension benefits can be terminated if a police officer, quote, is convicted of any felony relating to or arising out of or in connection with his or her service as a police officer. And the court pretty easily finds such a connection in Peterson's case. So what's the connection? Um, Well, the connection is this. Uh, One, prior to the murder of his wife, during a ride-along when Peterson was on duty, Peterson offered a former co-worker $25,000 to, quote, take care of, end quote, his wife. Two, on the day his wife's body was discovered, Peterson had called a locksmith on the locksmith's personal cell phone to ask for a wellness check on his wife. Third, Peterson was in uniform when he met the locksmith at his wife's door. Fourth, the locksmith would not have performed the wellness check without a police officer or somebody else in a position of authority uh, being present. And five, Peterson requested, quote, professional courtesy, end quote, from one of the first responders uh, who arrived at the scene, telling him that Savio was his ex-wife. Well, that seems pretty thin, right? Uh, I mean, let's go back to the statute. Uh, You forfeit your pension if you are, quote, convicted of any felony relating to or arising out of or in connection with his or her service uh, as a police officer. That's giving pretty broad reading to the word connection, right? Because this clearly doesn't arise out of the job. The murder did not. Uh, So it's it's a pretty broad reading of the word connection. But you get it, right? I mean, the court is looking at this fact situation, is appalled by the fact situation, uh, and is just about as appalled at the notion that somebody convicted of murdering their wife, a police officer convicted of murdering his wife, could be sitting in jail for 38 years collecting a public pension. Uh, And so you see this in these cases. You see this reaction to very bad facts with courts, I think, maybe stretching the law just a little bit in order to uphold the forfeiture of the pension. Now, a very similar sort of case uh, is, uh, is, comes out of Suffolk County in Massachusetts. That's Boston's county. Similar in the sense of an expansive treatment of the statute. Uh, this involves a guy named Paul Mayham. He was a corrections officer. And in the year 2000, uh, he's pretty severely injured while trying to restrain an inmate who was involved in a fight. Uh, His knee is blown out. He applies for accidental disability retirement. It's approved by the Pension Board for the Boston Area Retirement System. And for a seven-year period of time, from 2006 to 2013, Mahan received a combination of three benefits. Workers' compensation, something that under Massachusetts law is known as assault pay, if you're injured while being assaulted. And third, a disability retirement allowance. Now, in order to get workers' compensation benefits for this seven-year period, Mahan had to certify and did every six months under the penalties of perjury that he was not working or deriving any income from work. You know where this is going, right? So in 2005, just before this seven-year period of time, Mahan's wife operates a used car dealership. And between uh, 2006 and 2013, Mahan worked at the dealership. He was generally present during business hours. He sold cars at the dealership. He hired employees. He bid on cars for resale. And although his wife was the listed owner of the dealership, he represented himself to the general public as the owner. Well, Eventually, uh, the pension board tumbles to the fact that Mahan is doing this, and Mahan is indicted by a grand jury on two counts, one count of workers' compensation fraud and a second count of larceny. He pleads guilty to both offenses, and as a result, uh, there's a finding by the court that Mahan received overpayments of. Get ready for these numbers over this seven-year period of time. Overpayments of $205,000 in workers' compensation benefits, $181,000 in assault pay benefits, and another $49,000 in Retirement benefits. So, in other words, over $400,000 in benefits that Mahan wrongly got as a result of these three forms of benefits. And uh, the case uh, ends up, the case, the pension board terminates uh, uh, Mahan's pension, and his challenge to the termination of his pension ends up with the Massachusetts uh, Supreme Judicial Court. So, what's what's the key issue? The issue is all of this conduct happened after Mahan was retired, right? So he retires in 2005, or two, I, actually not 2005, about 2000, uh, and this conduct happens between 2006 and 2013. Uh, and so the question the court has to answer is, Uh, can post-retirement criminal behavior that is somehow related to the job result in the forfeiture of a member's pension? And the court answers that question, yes. Uh, Once again, the court's decision turns on the underlying statute, uh, and the underlying statute says that someone uh, who is convicted of an offense Quote, involving the funds of his or her current or former government employer uh, can forfeit their retirement benefits. And the court says, look, the plain language of this statute "...indicates that its application is not limited to individuals who commit the criminal offense at issue while they are serving as public employees. Nowhere in that section does the statutory language state that a member must be a member in service and thus an active employee at the time he or she misappropriates government funds." Uh, we will not add words to a statute that the legislature did not put there. And so the court upholds the forfeiture of Mahan's pension. Now, once again, I think, that's a, I think that's a little bit of a stretch. I think the purpose of this law relates to individuals who, while they were employed, committed some sort of fraud or stole from their employer in some fashion and were convicted of a crime. That's kind of how the language is worded. But you are seeing a court give, like uh, the court in Illinois did, an expansive treatment to the words of the statute in order to accomplish the result that the court thinks is right, which is, really, should someone who defrauded the government out of $400,000 in pension money, be allowed to continue to receive a pension? We don't think so. Okay, well, thanks for joining me for the October edition of First Thursday. I'm coming to you today, by the way, from a beautiful Anchorage, Alaska, uh, where it's raining, and it has been raining Apparently, most of the summer, unlike Portland, where it's been sunny all summer. Uh, We hope you can join us at one of our upcoming seminars. We have one on advanced police discipline in November in Las Vegas and one on union leadership. Uh, Think of it as how to run a police or fire or corrections union in January, also in Las Vegas. Uh, both of those seminars. uh, We already have a number of registrants too. So uh, if you're interested, make sure you sign up. And I hope that your October is a great one. Thanks for joining me. This is Will Aitchison signing off.